0: The spiritual gift of encouragement, I tell you. <laughs> this is the third Sunday in Epiphany. An Epiphany is when our Lord manifests to others who he is. The visit of the Magi revealed to them, to the Gentiles, who the Lord was. They saw his light in the sky. Then we saw Jesus in his baptism as the only one who can cleanse us from our sins as he is baptized. And we are baptized into his death and into his resurrection. Last week we saw that no matter how far we feel away from God, or how silent we think he is, he is always present with us. He is indeed present among us, where two or three are gathered, and we are crowned his children. However, for this Sunday, did you catch some of the subtle nuances in our gospel? What's happening in our text is something we can all relate to, and we have in one way or another, we have a phrase that captures the essence of what's going on. You see in our text today, we have an elephant in the room. You know the feeling, something that everybody knows, but nobody wants to talk about it. Our quest is to find out what exactly is that elephant in the room and understand what's going on in our gospel. In order to make that a little better sense of all that's going on in the text and in our worship every Sunday, I want to spend a little time leading up to some of the peripheral areas of our text that Nehemiah points out in his text. So there's a little bit of history going on here. It will help us understand the background into which Jesus is walking when he enters the synagogue. And it will help us understand even the roots a little bit better of our own worship. Because our text takes place during a worship service of sorts. We begin with a look at Nehemiah. You can look in your text and, and kind of follow and pick these out as I'm, as, I'm, uh, as I'm talking here. Our Old Testament prophet for today. He writes while in exile. Then he also writes when they leave exile because when they went back to Jerusalem, they were able to build the temple again. And so he followed the people when they went back from captivity into Jerusalem. While in exile, though, because they had to leave Jerusalem, they no longer had a temple and it was destroyed. They had to gather in other ways, and although we don't know how the synagogue was exactly Mm -hmm. born, they gathered at the city gate many times, the elders, and they had a worship service of sorts. So that's what went on at that time in exile. They had to have a leadership of ten men, and then a synagogue, or what is known as assembly, was born. And in these small assembly places, the people of God would gather. And Nehemiah is describing what went on. Ezra took the scroll of the law, which is the Torah. And it just doesn't mean the Ten Commandments. It means basically the whole of the book of Moses, which means the gospel as well as law. Torah means a path. It's a guide on the path of life. So Ezra takes the scroll of the law of the Lord, and he reads it for about six hours. Slightly shorter than our worship services on Sunday. Okay. <laughs> he read it to men and women and children. All who could understand were there gathered. And the people were eager to hear the law. Right? You're eager. Ezra stood on a platform above the people so everybody could see And here, and it was constructed for the purpose of reading the Torah. All the people stood up when he read from the Torah. And Ezra blessed the Lord. And his blessing was probably something like, great is the Lord God of Israel, or the Shema, what the Hebrews call, which means here. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then worship would begin, and everybody replied, Amen! Amen! Let it be. And they raised their hands and would bow down, which was how they worshipped back then in reverence. Then, not only was there a reading, but there was also an explanation. There was an expounding on what was read. So that it just wasn't read in perhaps archaic or old language, it was made applicable to the day. And so as Nehemiah is talking about what's going on, this particular occasion, they are before the water gate, before in the temple, after it's constructed. So they were listening to the Torah and reflecting on all the sins from, that had committed in exile, all of how their people had gone astray and had not lived up to what God had wanted them to be, And they did not fulfill the law of the Lord. And this is why they wept and mourned as Nehemiah talks. Because they realized that they were God's chosen people but didn't live up to his expectations. But they're told, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn and do not weep the forgiveness of sins. They are told to enjoy food because the Lord has returned to his temple. Get sweet drinks and send food to those who can't come. Send those to tell everyone that we are back and we're back in business. Here's what he says. Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not grieve. So all the people departed to eat and drink and to share their food with others and to enjoy tremendous joy. For they had gained insight in the matters that had been made known to them. Based on Nehemiah's description of the worship at the Watergate, perhaps you can make or already have made some similarities with worship as we know it here at Grace. Nothing in the scripture prescribes a specific form of worship. There's nothing that indicates how it has to take place. But throughout history, the Christian church has retained traditional elements for continuity from history until now. Barring languages, cultures, as much as possible, they've retained a form, and it's nothing that we have to do. But it's something, when we know the richness of it, links us with the past. What are some of these similarities that you may have noticed? Reading God's law. Reading from the word of God. Elevated position given to the word, not only in preaching as the the, the old architecture is here, but the word in many forms. Sung, prayers, the Lord's Supper, baptism, confession of faith, and the sermon. The reading of the lessons. So the word is the central element The congregation is also the same. The one who hears the word of the Lord. We stand in the beginning. We stand for the reading of the gospel and the invocation. So there's elements of standing, sitting, saying amen, giving honor to God's word. The announcing of the joy of the Lord as well. We share that with those around us. We have the handshake of peace. We have fellowship afterwards. there are some things which we continue to do from the Old and New Testament worship that Nehemiah doesn't point out. Here's a few of them. We begin our worship with an invocation. We begin not with the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, but we begin with, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is the one triune God. So it's not that much different. And in so doing, we remember our baptisms. Next is a confession of sin. We, do, we all do that next. Is a confession and absolution because as it says in Psalms 66, starting at verse 18, if I had harbored sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. However God heard, he listened to my prayer. God deserves praise, for he did not reject my prayer or abandon me, his love, for me. Then our greeting. Our greeting afterwards, Philippians says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's what we say. And that's when we give the peace of the Lord to each other. Clean, then, we can approach the altar of the Lord in the Old Testament. The altar was the place of sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. As you know, we have eternal life. And we have eternal light. The light from the Shekinah. We've talked about that before. God's presence represented in the red light. The one that Samuel attended in the Old Testament. The lamp stands around the altar as well. We're in the temple of the Lord. The altar, the place of sacrifice, is now a place of rejoicing and thanksgiving where there are no more sacrifices needed. The communion rails separate the inner part of what would have been the temple from the outer part, and God comes to us from the inner part. A lot of these changes are somewhat cosmetic that we have here and cultural However, what has changed not drastically is that of the prophet or the pastor. Pastor's office of the New Testament, and today, is actually the prophetic office of the Old Testament. Wow, he's talking about himself a lot here. Who does he think he is? He's a prophet now, besides our pastor? The one who picks up the scrolls and speaks, so to speak. So we speak of it as a call, not a job of being a pastor. It's a call. In the biblical sense, God calls the pastor to a congregation to represent him to the people, to speak of him, to act for him, only as his word directs. The role of the prophet and pastor is not fortune-telling. doesn't tell the future. What the prophets did in the Old Testament and those who lead the teaching and the worship, they were the ones who delivered and exposed God's word against sin and also told of his great mercies to the people who were repentant. So as you have it, before Christ, prophets were given the message for announcing the coming of the Messiah leading up to the New Testament. They did the same thing like John the Baptist did. Today, however, the pastor and prophet points back to Christ. In all cases, the message preached made God's word applicable and relevant to the people who were listening. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and today. So what does that say? The one who opens the scroll and reads and expounds from it is responsible to God for the correct teaching of that word. What is taught is to be God's truth and nothing more, not an opinion, not the way I see it, but the way that it has been throughout the centuries. His word made applicable and palpable to those hearing it, that it may affect a change in their life and strengthen their faith. So entering the synagogue today, then Luke talks about Jesus going in. The New Testament synagogue, not too much different layout. And he goes in, pastor, prophet, teacher, reading three lessons and an explanation. There was an altar area in the New Testament synagogue where scrolls were kept, the scrolls of the prophets. So Jesus is invited to speak. And he enters and he sits up front. And when it's time for the reading to take place, he's been given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he's told to read and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim acceptable the year of the Lord. He rolls up the scroll. He sits down. And it's quiet. Dead quiet. They stare at him. The text says they fix their eyes on him. What were the congregants thinking about? Why does nobody speak? Were they just waiting for him to open his mouth? What were they waiting for? What did they want to hear? Were they bored? Did they fall asleep? But nobody talks. What's wrong? Were they avoiding something? There's an elephant in the room, but nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody knows him. He's in his hometown. They saw him grow up. They saw him play. They'd heard of the miracles that he had done in and around the region, in Capernaum, for example. They knew he had been teaching in other synagogues. Some may have even been to the Jordan when he was baptized, and they thought that he was perhaps the prophet who was going to announce when the Messiah was coming. They knew him, and they had a lot of questions. What was he going to say next to this text? How was he going to teach them? Can you see some with their hands crossed, waiting? Then Jesus begins. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being read. Then it starts. Jesus is the elephant in the room. We didn't want to say anything, but okay, here it is. And they begin. Oh, doesn't he speak well? He gave such a good message. We know this guy. Isn't this Joseph's son? And this statement could have been taken or seen as a compliment, such as, hometown boy goes off into world and does good. But Jesus sees right through that. That's not what they mean. Sort of like when the conversation is going nicely, and you've heard this before, but you know that the two people don't really get along, and one says to the other, you look really nice today for what you got to work with. This is Joseph's son, isn't it? For what you've got to work with. Jesus cuts to the chase and says, okay, nice talk aside. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. And he gets the ball rolling. What you really want to say is, prophet or physician, heal yourself. Meaning, prove it to us. That's what they want. Prove it to us. We want to see proof. Like you did in Capernaum. We want to see people healed. We want to see some miracle. The things that you've done. How can he say that scripture had been fulfilled today? Meaning that the Messiah has come and it's fulfilled in him. Is he the Messiah? Here is the elephant in the room. Jesus responds to them with an insulting play on words. Where in Isaiah it says, he has sent me to proclaim today as the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus picks up on that in the Greek, and he says, but you don't accept me. Even further saying, I am the acceptable year of the Lord. Because the Jews, because of Jesus' next two examples, nail it on the head, like using the prophets Elisha and Elijah, they were sent by God to people whom he had not chosen, foreigners. And these prophets were not accepted among their own people, and Jesus is no different. And so he escapes to take the God's message to Gentiles, to foreigners, and he goes to those who would not receive him, who were not chosen, the poor, the oppressed, the blind, who spiritually do not see, the unloved. He goes to the unchosen, the unwanted. He goes to the homeless, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. He eats with them and says, today is God's love. To them and for them he preaches, as the angels did to the shepherds in the field. Today, born in Bethlehem. Today they will hear him teach and preach. And they will hear of a loving God whose Son was sent to take away the sins of the world. You know, at that time, those who heard Jesus wanted to get rid of him, take him out and stone him, as any good Jew would have done in that synagogue. In that synagogue, they had the proof that they wanted when he opened his mouth to speak, and they thought, We got him. We got this Jesus guy because Jesus hit the nail on the head when he used the examples of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, they were never going to accept him. Now they wanted to hit the nail on the head and kill him as a false prophet. When the time was right for the Jews, they did hit the nail on the head. They pierced his hands and they pierced his feet. And although they thought they were ridding themselves of a false prophet, their actions brought about the miracle of proof that they were actually waiting for. Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, and you will raise him up, and whoever looks upon him will be saved. We read this gospel lesson every epiphany. Why? Is there an elephant in the room here too? Are these? Are there those who question, who seek proof? Are we willing to listen, to learn, or merely fill an obligation? Every Sunday that we open up the scriptures, Jesus is fulfilling them with his presence. And he calls out to us and opens his word to us, calling us to repentance and to faith. Today is the day of God's good news in which he, through his death and resurrection, declares you acceptable to God. I am here to declare this the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, today his mercy is fulfilled in your presence. He is the good news for us. He is the today. He is the one who has fulfilled Isaiah's text. He has freed us from captivity to sin. He has opened our blind eyes to see our need for him and truly repent and come before him for forgiveness. He has taken your suffering and he has taken your oppression on himself, your depression, your isolation, your unworthiness, your separation from your creator to give you new life now and forever. Since his birth, resurrection and ascension, now is the time, not tomorrow. It hasn't passed. There is no other time and there is no other person. As Luke says in Acts 4.12, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other way of receiving this forgiveness and freedom of eternal life through Christ, except through the preaching of his word, which we have every Sunday. For by faith, faith comes through hearing the gospel. It opens our ears. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand, strengthens our faith. And we hear in the Lord's Supper, take and eat, this is my body. Drink, this is my blood. For you, today, Not 2,000 years ago. You're baptized in my name. Today you live in that baptism. Not when you were a child merely. Today. When we proclaim Christ, when we share Christ, when I preach Christ, we are saying today is the acceptable year of the Lord. Listen. Today salvation has come to you. Freedom and forgiveness have come to you. Amen. If you're interested in knowing more about Jesus Christ or about Grace Lutheran Church, please go to www.gracealoneonline.org. You can email us at gracealoneonline@gmail.com. at gmail.com.